standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles. It should be near by you, maybe even in front of you, and you'll find tonight's text on page 980. And we're going to look together at the first 11 verses of Paul's letter to the saints there at Philippi so many centuries ago. And so let me just read those 11 verses for us and then pray that God would bless our study and then we will continue together. So listen now as the Lord does speak to you once again through your word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, you have told us that your joy is our strength, and as we come this night, as we trust for the next few weeks and months, we will come once again each Lord's Day evening to study this wonderful book of Philippians. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, instill within our hearts an increasing zeal for your truth and an increasing joy in your Son, Jesus Christ, who loves us and continues to intercede for us and continue to minister to us by your Word and Spirit. And so speak that very Word to us now by the same Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know people, and I'm sure you do too, that live an everyday rhythm that is go, go, go. And then when they get to bed later on in the evening, they turn the light off and seemingly and somewhat miraculously to someone like me, they just roll over and go right away to sleep. And I confess that I've never understood such a person because I'm a person that understands the rhythm of go, go, go. Yet, when it comes to bedtime at Stone Household, I'm one of those people that needs a season of unwinding in order to be able to actually fall asleep. And so I go through various seasons with various ways of trying to unwind in the evening. And some years ago, I was watching Ken Burns' well-known documentary on the Civil War. And I think the reason I started watching it in the evening before going to bed, it was, it was narrated by this well-known historian and author named David McCullough. You know, if anything of David McCullough, you ever heard him speak, he's got a voice that tends to calm, uh, that tends to soothe, and it seemed appropriate for watching before bed. And if you've ever seen that documentary, what you would know, of course, is because it's focused on the Civil War. It's focused on a time 
where you don't have archival camera footage of wars and battles and various things that were going on in the early 1860s. You don't, of course, have the opportunity for viewing first-person interviews captured on camera. And so what the directors decided to do in order to amplify the emotional quality of the experiences throughout the documentary, they have various people reading letters. It might be a letter written from a soldier to his farm back in Pennsylvania. It might have been a letter written from a general to his home back in Georgia. If you don't love letters, I'm not so sure you would love the entire thing. If you don't love letters, I'm not so sure that you would understand the emotional reality of the experience. And it's quite true, isn't it? If you don't love letters, you won't understand even the New Testament as a whole. 21 out of 27 books are letters. If you don't love letters, you won't even understand the emotional experience that belongs to life in Christ, particularly between pastors like Paul and churches he planted, like the congregation there at Philippi. Because you might know in this letter, there's a singular quality of affection attached to it in terms of Paul's heart for the Philippians, whom he refers to as his crown in joy. Uh, This is a letter quite unlike the other letters of Paul we have in the New Testament, given its delight, given its desire that he's continually expressing toward the Philippians. And we want to see that along the way in the first 11 verses tonight. It's 11 verses uh, that follows a typical pattern in, in Paul's letters. You have a greeting, then you have an expression of thanks, and then you just have a prayer that's offered for the people to whom he's writing. And of course, it's a Pauline pattern, isn't it, that's Pretty challenging, I trust, and quite even instructive, isn't it? For how often do you greet a brother or sister in Jesus Christ and your impulse, like Paul, is to thank God for them and then tell them how you're praying for them, how you're hoping that they might grow in the Lord's grace. And so the thing that I want to bring to your attention tonight is partnership in the gospel. We're going to see that along the way in a couple of different ways, two in particular. I want you to see, first of all, in verse 1 through 8, that gospel partnership involves grateful participation. And then in Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11, it does involve prayerful expectation. So first of all, then, we get to the greeting Gospel partnership involves grateful participation. You'll see simply, he refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and he does something that's quite unlike any of the other letters we find in Paul in the New Testament. He, he mentions the overseers and deacons there at Philippi. He mentions the two offices, elder and deacon, that belong to uh, the New Testament and New Covenant Church, and we don't know exactly why. This kind of breaks from Paul's normal pattern with letters that he wrote in the New Testament. I tend to think it relates to this continual theme of unity that flows throughout the letter as he's wanting to call out not just the saints, but also the officers, recognizing that their life together is very much one that's meant to fuel unity. But you see, of course, verse 2, he continues in a typical way. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we stand tonight, don't we, at the beginning of a new year, and we can say with some degree of confidence and certainty, as we know our Bibles well, that what we need this year, what you need even tomorrow, more than anything else, is grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what you need this year, what you need tomorrow morning, more than anything else, right from the starting point, is grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, you might be in here tonight that wouldn't say that you have ever looked to the Lord Jesus in faith. You haven't ever turned to him with the eyes of trust. Uh, I want you to know, even from what this text is telling us, that you'll never find grace out there in the world. Ultimately, apart from Jesus Christ, all you'll find is animosity and even disdain. In the same way, out there, apart from Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as true peace. There's only continual enmity and continual difficulty. But for those who truly know Jesus Christ, this is a greeting right from the outset that belongs to all of us, isn't it? Grace and peace. Well, the grateful participation truly begins. Notice verse 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I've long thought throughout the years as it relates to these two verses that they're rather clumsy in the English translation. And if you happen to be able to read it in the original, it almost seems rather clumsy in the original too, the way the words are kind of piling up on one another. But kids, what he's saying here in verse 3 and 4 is simply this. I thank God all the time for all of you whenever I think about you, remembering you in my prayers with all joy. There's these kind of piling up of always and all things. All the time when I think of you, I'm always praying for you with all joy. And you'll notice that that final word there in verse 4 is very much the spiritual atmosphere in which, in which this letter comes, isn't it? Joy. You might know that Philippians is a letter of joy, joy in, in Jesus. And it's the spiritual atmosphere we find even in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Joy in Jesus Christ. I used to play for a soccer team that was sponsored by Red Bull. And so therefore, at every training and every game all around the locker room, you have these coolers of Red Bull everywhere. And there was always a number of players that, prior to going out to the field, you know, they'd take a small little can and chug it with the expectation of this kind of in injection of energy. There's this wings that they would get when they come on uh, the field. And it's, it's, it's wild to think about, to me at least, for Paul, what he's saying here, isn't he? That you want an injection of joy in your heart, Paul? He says, all I got to do is think of the Philippians. You want an injection of delight in your soul? All I got to do is think about this church that was planted so long ago. You ever wonder if we have that kind of relationship with church members, brothers and sisters in Christ, even in our local churches? That when things are difficult, or when things are even depressive and despairing, that all we would need for an injection of joy is to just think about our church family, to think about our loved ones in the Lord, and we'd find all kinds of reasons for thankfulness in our life. Uh, surely you would agree that there's this quality that belongs to gratitude in Christian spirituality uh, that makes Christian spirituality, when it's a particularly sweet, always full of thanksgiving in a noticeable way, you know, kids, you can think about it this way. Sometimes you may have uh, had your mom or your dad, perhaps you've been to a restaurant and you've ordered something that's both sweet and sour. And the reality of life in Christ here under heaven because of its imperfection is so often our spirituality, isn't it, full of sweetness and sourness? Uh, but Paul's exuding for us an example here, isn't he, of, of, of sweet Christian spirituality, always full of gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy. And why is he so full of thanksgiving and joy for the Philippians? Notice verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day 
until now. So I wonder what you know, if anything, about Paul's planting the church there at Ephesus. It's a really wild story involving things like earthquakes and exorcisms and surprising conversions and numerous baptisms. Uh, You might know, you find it in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his associates during that time and their missionary journeys, they were eager, the text tells us, to get to this place called Mycenae. Actually, I'm sorry, they were in Mycenae. They were wanting to get to Bithynia. And then the text tells us, Luke does, as he records it in Acts 16, that the Spirit was prohibiting them from getting to Mycenae. And then Paul, in the middle of the night, while he was sleeping, he had this vision of a man from Macedonia who came and said, come over here and help us. They took that as a word from the Lord. Up they went to the city there of Philippi. This Roman colony pronounced in its devotion to the Roman Empire. And it was there that Paul went to the place of prayer found this rich woman named Lydia, preached the gospel to her. She was converted. Her whole household was baptized. Maybe the next day or a few days later, they went back to the place of prayer, and they found a a young slave girl there who was basically possessed by this spirit of divination. And Paul exercised that demon from her. Everyone got upset about it. They were thrown into jail, and later on an earthquake happened, letting loose their prison cell, and they got out. And surprisingly enough, in God's Converting to sovereignty, it was the Philippian jailer who there was converted, and he and his household were baptized. That's the first day, if you will, of the ministry there at Philippi. And he says, from the first day till now, as best we can tell, something like 12 years has passed from the first day till now in Paul's life. And you can imagine, can't you? He's thinking back on all of these gospel partners that he has. Maybe it's Lydia. Maybe it's the Philippian jailer. Maybe it's these various individuals that he has heard of being converted in the years since. And he refers to them quite noticeably as participants, as partners in the gospel work. Even that word there in verse 5 of partnership, it's a word that speaks of a sharing in a treasure. And it's a challenging word for this reason. Uh, Many Christians today, and you might be one of them, uh, are more prone and more skillful in tolerating brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, more so than treasuring brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Uh, Your life and even heart might so often fulfill that old rhyme that says to live with, I'm sorry, to live above with the saints we love. That will be the glory. But to live here below with the saints we know, that's a different story. Treasuring people in the gospel This is a a normal part of gospel partnership. It's a normal expression, isn't it, of grateful participation. And you see even Paul continues with confidence, verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which that I I grew up always thinking about this verse here in Philippians 1, verse 6, as almost a proof text of individual salvation in its certainty. That, of course, it's true in the gospel, isn't it, in God's sovereignty and salvation, that that our perseverance, gloriously, it depends on God's preservation. And that's true. But really what Paul's referring to here is something less about individual salvation and more so about something we might think of as like congregational consecration. The prayers that are coming along the way in just a minute the kind of spiritual quality of life together from the first day until now, Paul says. The ministry of the gospel in your midst. He began something in you as a church. 
And he's going to be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And I trust that's even an encouragement to you, and you might have experienced a life full of years of difficulty in a local church. But maybe perhaps in God's kindness, you can look back on tonight and realize, yes, it was full of difficulty, but with each passing year, what have I noticed? God has been faithful to his promise that what he began in us, he's going to complete at the end. Thanksgiving will increase. Patience will increase. Fullness of the Spirit will increase. Love for Jesus Christ. It's, it's going to reach that place of growth. So you have reasons for hope and reasons for love. Notice verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you, Paul says, because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's the degree of his grateful participation, even in the midst of his defense for Jesus Christ there on trial. He's in imprisonment for Rome at this point. He's so connected with the Philippians that there's this physical distance between the two of them, no doubt. But there's this spiritual proximity between them as well. But they have been partakers with him of the grace in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, it's right for me to love you like I love you. It's right for me to hold you in my heart. Uh, those of you in the room that are parents and no doubt even grandparents as well, you, you know what it means to, to hold someone in your heart with, with such affection and such desire. I mean, there are times, aren't there, where in years past and looking through those windows, I can see kids in our church playing on the playground and I see my kids with them. I look at all of those covenant children and think, I love them. There is a peculiar quality of love, isn't there, that belongs to my little Sarah out there playing or my little Knox out there playing. Have you ever felt the holding in your heart of another church member? Yes, you see all the people in here in the room today that you may have seen perhaps this morning or you'll see other people throughout the week and say, yes, but the people in this room, in this church, among this partnership, uh, there's a unique place they have in my heart. Paul says that should be normal in churches. Grateful participation. You notice in verse 9 through 11, he now tells us gospel partnership also involves prayerful expectation. There's a... Wonderful pastor in the early 19th century, Andrew Fuller, who once said of this prayer, there's no prayer that I or any other could offer up on your behalf that would be better or more desirable than this prayer here in Philippians 1. And if you've ever spent time working through perhaps the church membership directory and you're wanting to pray for each family by name, each individual by name, and then you get to a name, of course, you're like, I don't know much about their current circumstance or situation, how I might be able to pray for them specifically today. Let me tell you that what you can do this year is just memorize verse 9 through 11 and just pray that would be true of them. A few things reveal the quality, uh, no doubt even the depth uh, of our piety like our prayer list does. And what you're going to see all throughout Paul's letters, and no doubt here in Philippians chapter 1-2, is what was of preeminent concern to Paul were matters of the heart. We're so often in our time and space what are preeminent concerns in our prayer lives, and understandably so, are matters of physical health, perhaps these kind of sufferings that come along the way. But how often do spiritual concerns, like what follows in verse 9 through 11, dominate your prayer life? Well, what does he say? Look at verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It shouldn't be surprising. It's almost as though Paul's saying, I want your love 
to match my love. I've just told you I'm holding you in my heart, you who is my crown and joy, and I want your love that exists clearly to increase more and more. That's the normal path of godliness according to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? How is the world going to know that we belong to him, but that we love one another? So it's not surprising that Paul prays for more love. It could be surprising, however, where that love comes from, or better said, how that love is fueled according to the next phrase. Because it says, let your love abound more and more. I'm praying for that with knowledge and all discernment. It really should read in knowledge and all discernment. That somehow, this, this word even here for knowledge, it's one of two we get in the original language. It's kind of this amplified uh, way of thinking about knowledge. It's probably something we could translate as spiritual insight. That our love for each other feeds upon spiritual insight. It, it finds fuel in, in genuine discernment. And even that has its own purpose, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. Why is he praying in this way? So that you may approve what is excellent. And of course, you need spiritual insight and discernment to do that. And you need spiritual insight and discernment to grow in love, if you understand Paul's connecting logic. So kids, think with me for a minute about this idea of discerning what is excellent. So kids, as as you grow up, you need to know from God's word, what's the difference between right and wrong? But that's not where you stop. Because that's actually the most basic part of growing in the truth. Discerning from what's right and wrong. Increased maturity means not just discerning what's right from wrong. It's discerning what is good in what is right. And then discerning what? What is better than what is good. And then discerning what is best more so than what is better. What Paul says here is discerning, knowing that which is Excellent, that you might test it out, that you might show forth that which is excellent. So it's why later on in the book he's going to talk about if you think about anything, think about that which is excellent. And students, I want you to grow in this too, even this semester. Can you know what it means when something is good, biblically? When something is better, biblically? When something is best and excellent? for our life in Jesus Christ. Well, he, of course, says there's a purpose for that too. Look at the end of verse 10. So that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So discerning that which is excellent, growing in spiritual excellence is necessary for the holiness that's required to see the Lord. Uh, I trust you see how Paul's in some ways closing the loop, even on this kind of complete spirituality represented in just a few small phrases because he continues, notice verse 11, that we might be filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love abounding more and more in knowledge and in discernment that we might test out that which is excellent and so be holy before the Lord at his return, therefore filled with his fruit of righteousness. Well, that's my deepest prayer for you. Uh, Parents, what's your deepest prayer for your children this year? Uh, Students, what's your deepest prayer for your classmates and your peers this year? Church members, what's your deepest prayer for this church this year? Gospel partnership means grateful participation and also prayerful expectation. I had lunch earlier this week with one of my closest friends that I grew up with. And 
Uh, life, as it so often does, it took us in completely different directions. We spent more or less the first, at least until I was about 15 years old, uh, almost every weekend he would be at my house or I would be at his house. He would normally vacation with us in the summer months in Colorado. I would visit him even eventually when he was in college. And in time, we just kind of went different ways. And through a variety of different circumstances, we kind of came across each other recently. And after many, many years of being apart, we sat down and had lunch. And if you had been there with us as we were having lunch, you would assume that we had seen each other last week. Such was the depth of the relationship that we do have. Although years and years had passed since we had last talked and seen each other face to face, there was this affection that existed between the two of us that surely supersedes the years that have passed by. And that's true, isn't it, of Paul's relationship with the church there at Philippi? It depends on how you look at it, but certainly north of a decade has gone since he last saw these people. And I want you to see two animating things in terms of the gospel partnership that they have in Jesus Christ. These two animating things I want to show you at the end. Number one, the affection of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 8. Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the word there for <clears throat> affection it's a unique one in the original. It's almost kind of hard to capture in the English language. It speaks about this deep-seated feeling in, in the gut, which is why if you have a King James Bible near you, it would speak about yearning for each other in the bowels of, of, of Jesus Christ. And what Paul seems to be saying there in verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart. God is my witness. I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. It's almost as though what Paul is saying is this. I love you so much that I can't put it into words. But I want you to know this. God is my witness. My affection for you is like his affection for you. I want you to know even tonight, yeah, you, you could be in here and perhaps the year of our Lord 2022 passed with very little affection in your life. Uh, you might find yourself in a situation and circumstance where there, there's no one who cares for you. You feel as though there's no one who knows you. Uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is there is one who yearns after sinners like you in the depth of his being. That there's a yearning of affection for sinners. That Paul says in the church there should be a reciprocal reality. That our affection for each other is but a tiny, yet we trust glorious reflection the affection that Jesus Christ has for his people. So if you sit in here tonight wondering, what oh, was the Lord Jesus Christ think about me, who's looked to him with the eyes of faith and repentance? Oh, the good news here is he looks at you with eyes of affection, of a heart of longing, with a soul of love, and gospel partnership shows forth the affection of Jesus Christ. We can say also, secondly, it's animating quality comes from anticipation of of Jesus Christ. You'll see in verse 6, it ends, doesn't it, speaking about the day of the Lord. Even doesn't it say the same thing at the end of verse 10, this coming day of the Lord. That's why uh, one scholar would say about Philippians, it's a joyful letter, but its undercurrent is the sober realization that time is running out. And of course, Paul would be thinking that, wouldn't he? He's there in prison under Roman imperial guard. Being in prison with the threat of death, 
What does it tend to do? Focus your attention on that which is most important. That you might exude affection for others. That you might grow in anticipation for the Lord's return. And of course, we're not in prison. We're not even under the threat of prison this year here in America. At the same time, too, uh, we know we're not promised tomorrow. That narrowing quality of Paul's prison experience should be a narrowing quality even in our own spirituality of that which is most important. Which is participation in Jesus Christ through looking to him and enjoying that partnership with those that he calls his own. Full of his affection, always waiting in anticipation that he's soon to return. Let's pray together. Lord, we are always eager to know more about your Son, Jesus Christ, for we know it's in your Son, Jesus, that we find life in his name, and we ask even this night that we would know evermore the fullness of peace, the fullness of grace that belongs to our Savior, and even the fullness of his love for us, that we might know and reflect the same, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.